chapter song uh, that speaks of the Lamb's power to save that we will one day sing together uh, and of the power of this dying Lamb uh, to uh, save uh, the entire redeemed church uh, so that we will be with Him and finally sin uh, no more. So Revelation chapter 14 Our text is verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This ends this reading uh, in God's word. Let's now look once again to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, we uh, do delight in the vision which is before our eyes Uh, today, which speak to us of a triumphant and victorious Lamb and His people, the redeemed church of God. Lord, our God in heaven, encourage our hearts with this sight today. Give us faith to believe that every word of Holy Scripture is true. Give us wisdom, O Lord, that this word might be applied to our lives. Grant to us a deeper and more abiding love for our gracious Savior, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. uh, Amen. Well, in the... uh, Old Testament scriptures, we read of a particular time in which the king of Syria was doing war against uh, the people of Israel. Uh, But Israel always knew where the army of Syria was because Elisha, the prophet, was telling the king. Well, the king of Syria was not happy about this, and so he decided to do away with Elisha and brought all of his horses and chariots to surround uh, the city of Dothan, where Elisha uh, was. And things were looking grim. Imagine having an entire army of people out to get you. Well, Elisha's servant was uh, deeply discouraged by uh, these developments And so he didn't know what to do. But at that, the uh, the prophet Elisha then tells uh, this servant uh, to go out, to not be afraid, 
And he tells them, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and he said, O Lord, please open my servant's eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of that servant and he saw and behold, he observed the entire mountain full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. That indeed he had an army of the Lord that was fighting for him against the devil, as it were, and his armies who were out to get them. He needed to have his eyes open to that. Well, in the New Testament scriptures, we read of another time that somebody needed to have their eyes opened. And here the story is of Mary Magdalene. The Lord Jesus Christ, her Lord, had just been uh, crucified just a few days earlier, a couple days earlier. And Mary was deeply dispirited and troubled that her Lord and her Master, her Savior, now was in this tomb. And she was in a garden. And in this garden, she uh, was walking. And she sees a man in the garden. And she asks him, supposing that this one was uh, the gardener. She asked him where the Lord uh, was laid. And instead, this gardener speaks. It speaks just a single word at first. The word is Mary. And with that single word, Mary, she cries out, Rabboni, teacher. And she sees. Her eyes were opened, as it were. To see that the Lord Jesus Christ was no longer dead but alive. That the resurrected Savior now lived as her Savior. Her eyes were opened. Well, in much the same way that Elisha's servant's eyes were opened. To see the horses and chariots of the Lord. And in the ways that Mary's eyes were opened to behold the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 functions in much the same way. You remember where we've been the last uh, several weeks in, Ro in Revelation 12 and 13. The, the descriptions that we've been given were very grim. Uh, we, were spoken on the, we, we had spoken to us on the one hand of a dragon, that ancient serpent who, was, uh, who sought to kill not only the Christ child, but now seeks to kill the woman, that is the church. We've read uh, in chapter 13 of two different beasts. A beast out of the sea representing uh, the Christ-denying governments of this world. And the beast out of the earth representing uh, Christless ideologies which war for the minds and souls of people. And we saw these beasts in all of their fury doing the will of the dragon, Satan. Now we've seen in the last few weeks together that uh, these beasts and this dragon have limits, and their days are numbered indeed. But nevertheless, the vision that we've been given is a terrifying vision. And on the one hand, it ought to lead us to be afraid. So what do we need? Well, we need exactly what John is given here in Revelation 14, and that is to have our eyes lifted. Our eyes lifted to this glorious reality that though the dragon wage war, though the beasts are ferocious indeed. There is one who stands and rules and reigns with his church over them all. 
and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this passage uh, today, we're going to see this vision, and we're going to see it under three different headings. First of all, I want us to consider the location of the redeemed saints. Secondly, we're going to see the song of the redeemed saints. And the third and finally, the character of the redeemed saints. The location of the redeemed saints, the song of the redeemed saints, the character of the redeemed saints. And so first of all, we are going to consider the location of the redeemed uh, saints. Again, we have just been reading in chapters uh, 12 and 13 of the dragon and his warfare and the beasts and their ferocity all waged against uh, uh, those uh, who are the Lord's people. The Lord protects them. But where is it ultimately that the Lord is going to bring them? Well, we find that in Revelation 14 and verse 1. And there we read, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Well, what does he see? First of all, we're told that he sees Mount Zion. Well, what does this refer to? Well, it could be speaking literally of the actual hill that was the location of the temple in Jerusalem. Or instead, it could be speaking of that greater reality to which Mount Zion points, the glorified church in heaven. Well, we're told here in verse 2 that the voice that he hears as the Lamb stands, that the voice that he hears is a voice that sounds from heaven. So that gives us a hint. And also, in, elsewhere in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, and verses 22 through 24, there we are told of Mount Zion. And we are told that as Christians, that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So where does it say there that Christians come to? Where is it that Jesus reigns? And we are told that he is in Mount Zion, that heavenly uh, Jerusalem that it's a dwelling where he stands in heaven. But this idea isn't foreign to the Old Testament either. In Psalm, uh, in Psalm 2, uh, we read uh, this. In Psalm chapter, uh, in the second Psalm, uh, beginning in verse 1, it says there, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Sounds a lot like Revelation 12 and 13, does it not? But what happens? What is the Lord's response to these things? Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. and The Lord holds them in derision, and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, what does that refer to? Well, ultimately, again, it refers to the reign of the anointed Lord, the Lord Christ, in this 
heavenly Zion, to which the temple and all of its Old Testament furnishings pointed, the reign and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ himself from heaven. And so it makes sense that in this book of symbols, the book of Revelation, that it is pointing us not simply to a temporary reign of Christ in Jerusalem for a thousand years, but rather is pointing us to the reign of Christ right now in heaven. And what does he see then as he, see, as he looks upon Mount Zion? Well, we're told there on Mount Zion stands the Lamb. What a wonderful picture this is of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a Lamb. And this speaks to the importance of Christ's sacrificial work. He is that Passover lamb who is slaughtered for the sins of the people. It is the Lord Jesus as the lamb who has borne the the wrath of the Father in our place. And who thus, as John the Baptist announced, becomes the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is this lamb who has secured completely the redemption of his people who has died for all whom the Father has given him, and by his death has secured his people's passage to glory. This lamb is standing. He is victorious. He is uh, the king. And so this Savior King is here standing on the holy hill of Zion, and who is described as being with him. We are told with him here is the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 144,000. Well, we ran, into this, we ran into this number already, actually, back in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4. And you may recall from Revelation 7 and verse 4 that there we were told that it was 144,000 people who were sealed by God. And it was this same number who were sealed who then were described in Revelation 7 and verse 9 as being a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so that 144,000, we said when we studied chapter 7, is a symbolic number, and it represents the perfected, complete church of God in which no one is missing. Uh, I think that number 144,000 is come to by having 12, which would represent the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God under the Old Testament, Multiplied by 12, the 12 apostles representing the people of God under the New Testament. And that times a a thousand, which is 10 cubed, a number of, of perfection. And so this number representing the entire redeemed people of God, both Jew and Gentile, the elect who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that makes sense. Because this 144,000 here in verse 1 are described as those who have the Lamb's name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Now what an interesting contrast this is to those who have the mark of the beast 
in chapter 13. Do you remember? That they had written on them the number 666, which is the number that stands or that falls short of perfection, which is seven. And all that man achieves on his own is not perfect. And the people of this world are marked by that number. But then here is a different group who have not that mark of the beast, but rather who are marked by the living God, sealed by him, identified as belonging to him with the Father's name and the Lamb's name written on their foreheads. God knows those who are his. He has them marked out. Not one is missing. Not one ever could go missing who belong to this Lamb. And so amidst the terrors of this world, there is a victorious reigning Lord Jesus who is with His church that is being gathered to Him. And so what a contrast there is between chapters 12 and 13 and what we come to here in chapter 14. There, in those earlier chapters, we had the picture of the beast lording it over all. But here we have the vision of the Lamb on Mount Zion, majestic in His authority, the protector of His people. Earlier we had in those other visions all of those people, the many multitudes who worship the beast and his image. But here we have the picture of that 144,000, those redeemed by uh, the Lamb who belong to him. There we had the followers of the beast and his worshipers receive his sign on their right hand and on their foreheads. But here we read that the people of the Lamb have a sign the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father on us. There we learn how uh, it seemed that the followers of the beast controlled all of the, all of the uh, earthly, uh, all earthly power and authority. You remember that none was even allowed to go and to buy and sell unless they had the mark of the beast. While the people of God were often persecuted. Then when we look upon Mount Zion and the Lamb, we see there the people of God reigning and ruling with the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And they are the ones who will learn this song of glory and of joy that is heard uh, from heaven. And so, dear friends, what a contrast this is. Do you see how you and I need to have our eyes open? That in the midst of this world where the dragon is active, where the beasts seek to seek to have their prey. Oh, dear friends, there is a reigning and ruling Lord Jesus. And there are a people who have been bought by His blood, secured by the blood of the Lamb, and who are safe in His presence. Oh, friends, that is the location of the redeemed saints. But now let's move on secondly to the song of the redeemed saints. The song of the redeemed saints. And now, we are told, beginning in verse 2, that suddenly, as the Lamb stands with this 144,000, that suddenly there's a voice that is heard from heaven. And this voice that is heard is really a song. And it's a song of praise that resounds before the throne. 
It's a song that is sung certainly by this redeemed multitude as they make known the praise of the God of their God. And friends, it's a song that gives us an insight into the heavenly worship of this lamb. What can we say about this song that is sung, this praise that is offered? And I have four different things that I want to say about it. First of all, you'll notice that it is a unified song. A unified song. Verse 2 speaks of a voice, singular, from heaven. Even though it is they, okay, you see that uh, in verse 3, that they that were singing this new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before uh, the elders, a song that none could learn except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So who is singing? It's the redeemed multitude, the 144,000, but they are singing so as to be one voice that is heard before uh, the throne. There's a kind of unified praise amongst the people of God. I think, friends, that even informs the way that we corporately worship the Lord now. Our corporate worship is just that. It is corporate worship. It is unified praise. It is praise that we are offering together as the people of God. When we come to church, it isn't so that each one of us will have our own individualized, personal worship experience. Okay, we don't darken this room so that you can't see other people. Okay, we don't try to drown out other people's voices. Because what we desire is that together in unity we would worship and praise the Lord. So when we sing, we sing as it were with one unified voice. When we pray, we have a spokesperson, but praying on behalf of all of us as together our hearts join in this one prayer that is offered up to the Lord. It is a kind of corporate worship that is even uh, uh, um, uh, a part of this, of this worship that goes on uh, in heaven. But not only is it a unified worship, secondly, you'll see that it is a loud worship. It's a loud worship. Uh, Elder Ernst made that point out of Psalm 47 at the beginning of our service today. And here, we're told in verse 2 that this voice that is heard from heaven is like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. It's majestic. It's loud. And I think there are few experiences as wonderful as a huge congregation singing God's praise so loudly that even when you sing loud, you can't hear your own voice. You know, I love loud music, not the kind that's created by microphones and turning the stereo up, but the kind that is created by human voices singing the praise of our God. And the promise is that in heaven, the worship is going to be loud, coming from a vast multitude of worshipers. The third characteristic of this worship is that it is pleasing. It is pleasing. The voice I heard, it says, was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. That is, 
It was a melodious sound, pleasing to the ear, a beautiful song, every word speaking truth, a tune that fits the praise. It's a, it's a wonderful song, a melodious song. This is the language that he can use to try to describe how beautiful this song is. So it's unified, it's loud, it's pleasing. But the fourth thing about it is that it is sincere. It's a sincere song. It says that they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before uh, the elders. That word new song, it's a phrase that's actually often used in the Psalms and it refers to a song that responds to God's new redemptive works. And so when God redeems his people, they desire to praise him. When God performs new redemptive works like his death and resurrection, that's why we sing songs that talk about his death and resurrection, or when Christ reigns in glory, well, there are songs that are matched to those redemptive works. It's a new song in response to God's redeeming work that is sung. And here it says that this new song will be sung only by those who have experienced this saving work of God. Okay, did you get that? No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed uh, from the earth. And that means that this was a sincere song by those who have experienced this saving grace. You know, I I enjoy um, uh, uh, sacred music. Um, Maybe some of you have heard uh, the Messiah. Maybe you've gone to a a concert where the Messiah was sung. Amazing biblical words, majestic, glorious music. But sometimes one of the disheartening things is you go and it's sung by a professional choir and the people don't believe the words that they're singing. Isn't that sometimes a disheartening thing? There's a, there's a disconnect between these glorious words and people who are doing it just to get the paycheck. And here we are told in heaven, the words of praise that are sung are going to be sung by people who believe these things with all of their heart. They have been redeemed by this Lamb, and so they are opening their mouths to sing His praise and to make it known and to glorify Him for all that He has done. Friends, that'll be glorious when it is saints who have tasted this grace who open their mouths in praise and sincerely voice the praise of their God. Let me just make a couple points of application here from verses 2 and 3. The first is just that these characteristics should inform our praise even now. If our worship is actually a participation in heaven's worship, if the saints below join the saints above, if together we are part of the same redeemed church, then friends, our corporate praise now ought to have these same characteristics. We ought to sing in a unified voice that is loud and that is pleasing and out of a sincere heart. Might that be our aim every time that we come to worship God and to bring Him praise? 
But a second application I want to make is this. It's just simply to say that I hope this whets your appetite for what is to come. This is a description of heavenly worship. Now some people say, I kind of hope that heaven isn't going to just be one long worship service. Well, I don't know entirely what heaven is going to be like. I don't know what, what our experience fully is going to be like when we are there. But I can say this much, that the highest and most mind-expanding and emotion-engaging and thrilling and delightful and meaningful and heart-satisfying experience that you will ever, ever have is when you, with sinless soul, will perfectly sing praise to your God with the entire redeemed church before the throne in the very near presence of the Lamb of God himself. So I don't know exactly what heaven is going to be like, but I do know that we are going to worship. And that that worship of the Lamb in that place is going to be the very, very best thing that I have ever experienced. You long for that day. You long to have a heart that is going to be so fully absorbed in the glories of your Savior that you just delight to make known His praise and to add your voice with the voice of the multitude in making known His glories. You long for that day when you shall be in His immediate presence and shall so worship Him So dear friends, when you think of heaven, don't ask the question so much, well, is all that we are going to do worship? But rather, might you say, oh, I cannot wait till I get to worship him there. The song of the redeemed saints. But third, and finally, I want us to consider the character of the redeemed saints. The character of the redeemed saints. This is found in verses 4 and 5. And here, the people are described. You'll notice that language. Verse 4, it is these. And again in verse 4, it is these. And again in verse 4, these have been redeemed. Okay? And then uh, in verse 5, it describes them in their mouth. No lie was said. So these are descriptive words. Who is it that are with the Lamb who are singing His praise? Here we are given a character description of this 144,000. And four different things. I mentioned four things about the song, and here is going to be four things about the character of these redeemed saints. And the first of those things that will mark their character is purity. Purity. There it says, verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now the question comes, well, what is this uh, referring to? Does this mean that all of the redeemed uh, will be virgins, that they have uh, taken a vow of celibacy and kept that? Well, that would be uh, rather strange in the sense that God clearly affirms the goodness of sexual relations within the covenant of marriage. Uh, He affirms the goodness of, uh, of the marriage relationship and of having children and so forth. And so uh, that would be a, a strange thing. Well, how are we to understand this then? Well, I think, again, like much of Revelation, let's think of it 
figuratively, in that this language represents the moral purity and devotion of the people of God. Later in Revelation, we're going to read of Babylon representing this world and its systems being a prostitute. And so here we are told that the redeemed are not to be those who defile themselves by living in worldly ways according to worldly standards. Don't wed yourself in an intimate relationship with this world, we are told, we are told but rather in purity our devotion ought to be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of the Bible uses this same language figuratively. All over the place, actually, in the rest of Scripture. Let me just read one passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 2 and 3. And there it says, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. What did it mean? For them to be presented as virgins to Christ, it meant that they would have a sincere and a pure devotion, a single-heartedness in their love and in their purities. Now, it is absolutely true that one of the ways that such devotion to Christ and such purity is expressed is in the area of uh, sexuality that we are to seek to be a chaste people, careful with what our eyes see. We need to be those who guard our thoughts. Christians are to be different from the world. We don't sleep with our boyfriends or our girlfriends. We guard sexual relations for the intimacy and the covenant committee, a commitment of a marriage relationship. We do this out of service to God. We are to flee sexual immorality, uh, we are told. But that's just one part of what he's talking about here. It's to be in every aspect, in every area of our lives that we are to walk with the Lord. Well, you might ask the question, what if I have been one who is defiled uh, by uh, the world uh, in the area of sexuality or in anything else? What if I am one who has lived by worldly standards and have walked according to the world's ways, well, the answer is, is that you can be cleansed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a real and glorious cleansing. And so even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, there we read, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to the breadth of that list. These are saying these are ways in which we defile ourselves. So if you are any one of those things, are you then beyond hope? And the answer is no, because he goes on to say, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the beauty of His redeeming work. And so even where we have been defiled, when we are cleansed by Christ's blood, we are washed and indeed presented as a pure virgin to the Lord Jesus. So that's how His people are described here 
So on the one hand, there is a purity. But the secondly, you notice that they are, no, they, they are described as followers of the Lamb. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Followers of the Lamb. It's, what a beautiful description. One of the commentaries that I read said uh, that uh, it, it used to be in Scotland that sometimes, and I guess Jennifer can correct me if we're wrong about this, but it used to be in Scotland that sometimes a Christ, when a person was converted, they were descri- it was described of them that they have begun to follow the Lamb. Just what a wonderful expression that is. They have begun to be a follower of the Lamb. And indeed, that's what all Christians are. We are those who are followers of the Lamb. And where do we follow the Lamb? We follow the Lamb into His Word. Even when it is hard. We follow the Lamb into His church. His beloved bride. Even when the church isn't that popular. We follow the Lamb into obedience to His words. Even when our flesh is saying the opposite. And we are also to follow the Lamb even when He calls us to go through tribulation or persecution for His sake. Because we know that when we go to such places that the Lamb is still with us, His people. Oh, are you one who is above all a follower of the Lamb? So we're pure. We're followers of the Lamb. The third thing that this 144,000 are is that they are redeemed as first fruits. These have been redeemed for mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now that language of first fruits refers to the first part of the harvest. And it was the part that was especially dedicated uh, to the Lord. So actually in the Old Testament law in Exodus 23:19 we read that the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of your Lord. So the first fruits, the best, was that which was dedicated to God. Now this passage, and elsewhere as well, describes us as being that first fruits who are redeemed unto the special service of the Lord. And so James chapter 1 and verse 18 uh, actually uses this identical language. There it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That when we are born again, we are dedicated as the first fruits uh, to the Lord. And so this here is saying that those followers of the Lamb are those whose lives now are marked out. That we are redeemed in order to live for His glory. That our purpose is to bring glory to our God. That the reason for my existence is that I might make much of Him and His name and His grace. We are redeemed as first fruits unto Him. But the fourth characteristic of these people of God is that they are truthful. You see that in verse 5? And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. God's truth itself is a precious thing. And here it speaks of the importance of truthfulness among those redeemed by His name. 
So if we are followers of Christ, we are not to be those who lie, that is, who speak falsehood, who tell fibs. But similarly, we are to be those who don't lie in the sense that we testify to God's truth. We don't believe the lies of this world, but testify to God's truth, His Word, wherever we are. And we are willing both to live and to die for the sake of that truth. God's people are marked out by truthfulness. And so these are four characteristics of those who are with the Lord as He reigns on Mount Zion. What can I say here by application under this point? First of all, I'd want to say this, ask you this question. Are these things true of your life? Now, not perfectly in this life. We have not yet reached sinless perfection. But these, dear friends, in some measure are the marks of those who belong to the Lamb. In the same way that if you were to tell me well, I'm a chef. And then I were to realize that you didn't own any pots or pans, that you didn't know how to follow a recipe, that you didn't know a lot of the basic ingredients that you would use in a kitchen. I would say, well, that's nice of you to tell me that, but your life has none of the characteristics of what a chef has. Well, similarly, dear friends, these are the characteristics of those who have been redeemed by the Lamb. Does your life reflect these things? Are you seeking after purity of heart? Are you seeking to follow after the Lamb? Are you one who is dedicated to His glory as the first fruits? Are you one who is seeking to exercise truthfulness with your mouth and with your life? These are the marks. And if you say with honest look, no, these things are not true of me. I call you today to repent and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved and that He might transform your life as well like He has the lives of so many others. These are the marks of those who are the lambs. But let me just say also by way of application that for those of you that do belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, here in verses 4 and 5, and this is glorious, is a promise of what you someday are going to be in perfection. Well, friends, when you are in the near presence of that Lamb, with Him fully redeemed in glory, here is a description of who you are. And isn't it beautiful? This is what the Lord is going to purify you to be. This is what it's going to look like to belong to Him in glory. And just like that heavenly worship should whet your appetite for the kingdom to come, so ought this ought to whet your appetite. Lord, You are going to so transform this heart of mine that, sits, that still sometimes runs after idols, that still sometimes puts self ahead of my God, that still sometimes does the most stupid and foolish things that sometimes believes the lies of Satan rather than the word of the living God. And I repent of those things, Lord. And I want to be yours, but I still have this sinful heart that I struggle with. The Lord says, here, I'm holding it up before you. You don't belong to the world eternally. This is what you're going to look like. This is the purity that will be yours in glory. Don't that encourage your hearts even now to follow the Lord all the more and to hope in Him. Just by way of closing, let me just say uh, one final thing. 
by way of application. Um, this passage, dear friends, I want you to turn your eyes upon a passage like this frequently. You know, we live today in an age of anxiety. We live in an age when there are a lot of scary things. Nuclear arms, global pandemics, economic volatility on a huge scale. We live in, the, in a secular West that is increasingly calling good evil and evil good. Many of us are trying to bring children up in this kind of culture. There is a rapid increase of mass shootings. There's the rise of militant Islam. There continue to be natural disasters that take lives and take possessions. And friends, these are only some of the global stressors that we can get to your life individually. The loss of a job or of a dwindling bank account amidst crazy inflation. Rebellious children, a rocky marriage. For young people, sometimes it's the stress of exams and fitting in with your peers or worrying about your future. And on top of all of those other things, you have your own stupid, sinful nature that you're trying to do battle with and trying to win some victories. This is discouraging sometimes. It is all too obvious to many of us that that dragon, Satan, is at work in the world. And that the beasts out of the sea and out of the earth are exercising great influence. So what are we to do in the midst of this anxious age? Well, there are many things that we could say, but John here leads us to the first and the most important thing that we need to do, which is to see the Lord Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion, ruling and reigning in the midst of this world. Who rules the Lord Jesus Christ? Who rules that same Christ who loved you and died for you and has made you secure in his embrace, the Christ who is now feeding you out of his word and strengthening you by his promises, the Jesus Christ who has joined you to his church and given you Christian friends and given you preaching and opened your mouth to praise him and given you his spirit to indwell you and who is changing you even now from the inside out to conform you to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one who stands on Mount Zion with his people. And in the midst of all of the troubles, this we know. And like John of so long ago, can we now say, I looked and behold on Mount Zion, there stands the Lamb in the 144,000. Do you see it? Do you rejoice in it? And might that help us to find joy in him, even amidst the troubles and anxieties of this world? Let's pray together. O Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the truth that it reveals and the encouragement that it brings, the ways that it shows us this victorious and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, our God, now strengthen us by this vision that John received long ago when we received through him. Lord, our God, might we be strengthened to go out into this world and to worship and serve you in light of the glory that yet awaits. O Lord, we pray all these things now in Jesus' name.
Uh, amen. Brothers and sisters, we're now going to sing a hymn that actually speaks of this uh, of these words.